Today we're going to be talking about uh, exile and what it means to be in exile for the life of the world. So near the end of The Lord of the Rings, Sam the Hobbit awakens on an Easter-like day. His dreams have come true. Against all odds, he and Frodo have succeeded in destroying the evil ring. Sauron uh, and the forces of Mordor, which seemed uh, as if they would, they would forever dominate the world and destroy it, have been defeated. And Samwise awakens in the safekeeping of King Aragorn and in the presence of Gandalf, whom he had previously given up for dead. It's a morning that he never expected to wake up to. And Gandalf says to him, well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? And uh, quoting Tolkien here, but Sam lay back, stared with open mouth, and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. And at last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Now Sam's question is much, much larger than simply, will my story have a happy ending? Sam is rather asking about the story of the whole world. Is everything sad in our world going to come untrue? Yes, and in our world, Easter and Easter tide marks the beginning of everything sad coming untrue. It's the first day of spring for all creation. On the first day Easter morning many years ago, the whole world awakened to a new and unexpected horizon. Jesus had risen from the dead. The ice and snow of our eternal winter of death was finally beginning to thaw, and God was fulfilling his promise of making all things new. So everything sad is coming untrue, and it starts with Jesus' resurrection. But if that's true, why is it taking so long? Why is it taking so long for all the sad things that we experience in our world to come untrue? Why does it still feel like Mordor? Why does it still feel like we are on the other end of the hot burning glaze of Sauron? Sad things still mark our world. I'll give you three examples, but there are more than that. Number one, broken relationships with family and people that we were once close with. People you care about, you can't talk to them anymore, or this tension, things that you can't resolve right away, and it's really sad. Secondly, a lack of shalom and systematic injustice in our country and city, seen especially in the premature deaths of unarmed black men. Number three, a hostile work environment, a hostile creativity environment, a hostile um, uh, school environment. There's hostility between people, perhaps hostility towards your faith. And you face it, it's not going away. So if Christ is risen and sad things are coming untrue, how are we supposed to interpret all the sad things that haven't come yet untrue? What are we supposed to do with all of that? We're made new. We're forgiven from sin. We're standing confidently in the kingdom of God. And yet we live in the kingdom of man where there is lingering brokenness, lingering sadness, lingering injustice. So how are we to relate with the world now that we've been made new in Christ? And how are we to relate with the larger culture? For those of us who have raised in the Christian faith or who observed growing up Christian culture, um, we've seen two different ways that that question is answered. The first way that question is answered is domination. 
taking back our schools and neighborhoods and media and doing so quickly. Go on the offense. Take the ball from the opposing side and win. Win souls, win legislative battles, win debates. Do it quickly before the buzzer goes off and we lose the cause forever. Domination. Secondly, fortification. This is when we seal ourselves off from the broader culture that has not yet been made new in Christ in order to be protected from its corrupting influence. Create an alternative culture, a bomb shelter of sorts, with our own music, our own clothing, our own schools that are not contaminated by the broken world. So if domination is powering up, fortification is covering up. These are the hallmarks of what some of us would call fundamentalism, and they make us cringe to some degree. And yet, there's truth. There's some insight in both responses. But sometimes the way they work themselves out, we're a little uncomfortable with that. I think we're inclined towards a third response, which we'll call accommodation. I think many of us are inclined towards this third response. This is where we seek to evolve out of the us versus them mentality. Um, and find as much common ground with our culture as possible. We're eager to erase any offensive elements of the Christian faith, perhaps even seek for the Christian faith to itself evolve, and then gain the approval and solidarity and smooth relationships with the culture as we modify our identity. In many cases, we open ourselves widely to cultural influence inasmuch as it was constricted growing up and there was a big, huge filter, barely any culture coming through, we then open up our filter completely so that we just take in anything the culture gives us. We absorb it. We see the beauty in it. We see the creative synthesis between our faith and the world around us. And we do is what Eugene Peterson calls sprinkle holy water on the culture's good intentions. Now, accommodation feels different from domination and fortification. But there's a common element in all three responses. And that is this. It is an attempt to survive in an environment of panic and fear. Both for, uh, fortification, domination, and accommodation all have a sense of urgency that if we don't do something now, there's a crisis just around the corner that's going to overtake us and it's going to be irrevocable. We're not going to be able to do anything about it. Surviving in an environment of panic and fear. So we've been made new in Christ. We've been given his life and his resurrection. And we have this world around us. We stand in the kingdom of God, and yet we live in the kingdom of man. And it's almost like there's a bomb that's going to go off. We've got to find something to do with the bomb. So perhaps we throw our own bombs. Or perhaps we build a bomb shelter to hide from it. Or perhaps we defuse the bomb. But in any case, we're trying to resolve what we see as a tension. If we don't do something now, we will be on the other end of an irrevocable crisis. We power up, we cover up, we blend in. Our friends, people of the resurrection have no reason to panic. We have no reason to panic. There's an alternative way that we are called to work in the world, to live at our distinct identity and calling within the kingdom of man. And it's this. We put down our roots here as exiles, as expatriates, and we live for the life of the world as loyal subjects of King Jesus. Instead of seeing the culture as a bomb that's about to go off, we, see, we relate with the culture as gardeners who are entering into what could be a type of wilderness 
that needs to be cultivated for the long term, not the short term. That's what exiles do. Exiles under King Jesus go into the culture, seeking to cultivate it so that it represents the truth, goodness, and beauty that King Jesus gives as part of his resurrection. We are empowered by the Spirit to clear the land, to plant seeds, and to water and grow so that our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and those of our city will be able to taste of the fruit that, has, that we have planted. So the tension has not gone away. But we're also not in a panic. We're not at home, but we're not in a panic. That's the situation that Jesus calls us to as exiles. So we still live in a broken world. Temptation, sin, crime, disease, injustice, and death is a constant reality. Sometimes it feels like springtime, and sometimes it feels like winter for Christians. But in any case, we're not at home yet, and we're not in a panic. We have the Holy Spirit, we stand in the kingdom of God, and yet we're not at a panic living as cultivating gardeners in the kingdom of man. This is why we feel tension every Sunday when we are sent forward into the world in the power of the Spirit. Because we're going back out in some ways into foreign territory. Until God makes all things new, we won't ever feel completely at home in the world, even though we have the consolation of the Spirit. Our vision is long-term, not short-term. There's not a bomb that's about to go off. There is a garden to cultivate amidst a wilderness. So we need help to do this. We need instruction and encouragement to live as exiles in this way. We're going to look at Jeremiah 29. Um, And this was a letter to exiles, a letter to God's people um, who were living as exiles in Babylon. We're, We're in the same story as the people to whom this letter was written. We're in a different chapter, for sure. But we're in the same story, and we feel the same tension. In Jeremiah 29, we're going to explore three shifts that we need to make to be faithful exiles in the service of King Jesus. Firstly, a shift from surviving to multiplying. Secondly, a shift from panic to patience. And thirdly, a shift from fear to love. So from surviving to multiplying, from panic to patience, and from fear to love. First, let's look at exiles. As exiles, we are called to move from um, surviving to multiplying. Look with me in Jeremiah 29. I believe it's in your bulletins. Starting in verse 4. Thus the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles to whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So we're supposed to settle down in the world we live in. Plant gardens and build houses and eat the produce. These are all long-term projects that we are given as Jesus' loyal subjects. Being stewards of whatever resources he sends our way. Just as Adam and Eve were once called to be good stewards of God's royal garden. For some of us, that means literally owning real estate and growing food. For the others of us, it means taking stock of whatever resources God has given us, taking an inventory of sorts in terms of relationships, education, experiences, jobs, opportunities, 
cultural power and so on, and then stewarding them in such a way that whatever God has entrusted to our care will flourish and bear fruit. This is the call for every single one of us. So you care for whatever God has given you. Um, if you watch the first film in the For the Life of the World series, um, there's, a really, there's a beautiful idea that's pictured there, and it's that of an orchestra illustrating how all of our different responsibilities that we have blend together. They all work differently, so the work of art and the work of creative service and the work of uh, justice, they're all kind of like different instruments. They have different economies, different rules, different sounds, but they can all work together and play together and blend together in a way that sings of God's creation, sings of God's story, sings of the story that all is gift. So whatever God has given you, whatever he's trusted you with, you're making a beautiful song that gives glory to the Lord. And as people hear it and ask you about the song you're singing and playing, you can invite them into the story that God has invited you into. You can invite them into this community as well. But the song is much more beautiful because it's filled with all kinds of people playing the same song. And it's filled with exquisite harmonies sung to King Jesus for the life of the world. Jeremiah 29.6 says this, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. As you steward whatever God has entrusted to you, you're going to need partners. You're going to need helpers. And this is a call to multiplication. Increase in number, do not decrease. God's not telling them to have sons and daughters in marriage to the Babylonians. We, we see if we read the whole book of Jeremiah that the, that. Babylon is already filled with people who don't know God, who are rebelling against God, particularly in a, in a city like Babylon. Rather, this is a call to, to multiply God and to do so uh, through God-fearing stewards, more image bearers that you can partner with, that you can teach, that you can multiply yourselves in, who will bear God's image with you. In short, Jeremiah reiterates what God commanded to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 1, when he says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Um, So they're in Babylon, but they have the same commission as Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. Their job description has not changed. Their city has changed. And there's more pain and death and tension and brokenness. But the responsibilities have not changed. So it's a call to move from survival uh, to multiplying. Secondly, exiles are called to move from panic to patience. We're called to move from panic to patience. Let's read, starting in verse 8. For thus the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And what the prophets were saying, these false prophets were saying, you're only going to be there a couple years. You've got a limited window of time. You're going to get in. You're going to get out. So live your lives accordingly. And and the Lord is saying, that's a lie. That's not true. You're going to be there 70 years. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Seventy years is shorthand for a work of a generation. It takes 70 years for a generation to, to raise up and complete its work. And the Lord is calling, through Jeremiah, the Lord is calling his people 
to have that kind of vision, a vision for their work which will outlast them. One of the things that Jeremiah did is he, he buried the deed to his property as a sign that he wasn't going anywhere and that his work was long-term and not short-term. There wasn't a buzzer to beat. There was a garden to build. Think about how this would transform our vision of where we work and where we study and where we worship and where we pray. The places of the world that bring us the greatest sense of heartbreak. What if we had a long-term, not a short-term vision for those prayers that we were praying, for the hope that we had? Jeremiah's patient long-term approach is very different from the way of thinking um, uh, that uh, the, the sense of urgency that much Christian activism has today. A lot of Christian activism has a short-term approach, is very loud for a very short period of time, but sometimes fails to build institutions, to multiply itself, to take a long-term patient approach that trusts that King Jesus ultimately is the one who's going to bring the renewal. We all know how to handle a short-term assignment. We get in, we get out, we take our necessities with us, but we don't buy a home, we don't build a garden. We just survive for a short period of time, and then we're out of there. But everything changes when your assignment becomes a long-term assignment. You begin to make friends. You begin to buy furniture. You begin to paint pictures on the walls. You make a home there. That's what Jeremiah is calling God's people to. And that's what the Lord calls us to do now in whatever sphere we're in. Jeremiah's patient long-term approach has the advantage of taking the weight of the world off of our shoulders and putting it onto the shoulders and responsibility of King Jesus where it belongs. Because we cannot handle that on our shoulders. It will, it will make us crazy trying to carry the weight of the world. We can confident, confidently believe that Jesus is making everything sad come untrue in the timetable that he decides, not the timetable that we force. Indeed, look at what he's already done. As we look just in the last 200 years of Christian history, hospitals built, schools built, the abolition of the slave, tri slave trade, protection for women, which came from the Christian community first, protection for children, which came from the Christian community first, and so many other advances. At the same time, Jeremiah's patient long-term approach is more realistic. It is a more realistic way of envisioning how God is making everything sad come untrue. It's happening, but it's in fits and starts. It's three steps forward and two steps back. We have to accept that. We have to be, accept that that is how the Lord has designed it. And it's also usually coming at a cost to God's people. This is what so much of us fail. We want a shortcut around the cost. But friends, if we want to see renewal in Chicago, if we want to see renewal in Uptown, it will cost the church. It's no coincidence that in most every case, whenever and wherever real change has taken place, it has been through some kind of Christian suffering, whether through persecution or through people saying no to their own wanderlust, refusing to choose a better house, a better job, a better spouse, and on and on, and instead staying put and suffering in some way to bring life to the world with partnership with King Jesus. The advances of God's kingdom will never come easy. 
I long for this patient, long-term approach to take root here at Emmanuel and to take root here in Chicago. I want this to be in our hearts. I want this to be in our heads, not only for those of us who are called to stay here and live, but also for those of you who are graduating, who are called to move somewhere else. I want you to take the long-term gardening approach with you. Far too many churches view our Father's world with cynicism and pessimism and despair, and they let it take away their hope. I want Emmanuel to be known as a community of hope for what God is doing now and will continue to do so in generations to come. May the seed we plant today bear fruit for our children, for our children's children, for the life of the world right here in Chicago, and we may never see the fullness of our fruit but may we have the vision for it. So we're called to move from surviving to multiplying. We're called to move from panic to patience. And finally, we're called to move from fear to love. Friends, why does King Jesus take so long to make all sad things come untrue? It's his, it's his decision. It, it's his plan. It's his choice. And there's one clear benefit to the length of time that it's taking. God's grace is still available to those who remain estranged from him. And instead of being afraid of those who are unbelieving in God, afraid of those who don't share our faith, we can love them. We can be in their life. We can have them over for dinner because we know what it's like to be exiles. We know what it's like to feel estranged as aliens. And so we can love, we can empathize with them. We can, ex we can especially bond with those who are experiencing alienation and loneliness. Psalm 68.6 says that God sets the lonely in families. And he wants to do that in Uptown. He wants to do that in Chicago. And he wants to do that through you. He wants to set the lonely in families through the empathic, loving outreach of the people of God who are themselves living as exiles for the life of the world. In Babylon, the Jewish exiles who received Jeremiah's letter had to overcome their fear and begin to love their Babylonian neighbors as they built houses, as they planted gardens. They had to leave their refugee camp. They had to leave their compound and go and talk with the Babylonians down at the public market. They needed advice. They needed supplies from the locals. And it's the same for us. And I see so many of you reaching out in this way. We can't simply be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord without our unbelieving neighbors. We need their help. We need, to be, we need to be friends with them. We need to be in partnership with them. People of every faith and lifestyle and persuasion under the sun, they know something about building houses and planting gardens here. They do, and we can learn from them in humility. But we are not to use them. We are not here as a church to build an amazing, like, thriving church at the expense of the city. We are here for a thriving city, and we're going to use the resources of the church to pursue that. It is a temptation for churches to look at the people and the institutions of the city and go, I can leech off of that and build a great church, and that is not what we're called to. And as much as the Lord allows us, we are called to lay down our resources for the life of the world. One example of this happening is right here at Uplift. Uh, we, a significant portion of our budget 
uh, of your generosity, quite frankly, goes towards this school so that we can have the space on Sunday mornings and, you know, special services. And that money has been being saved up. And this year, the basketball team needed some of those funds. It went to pay for new uniforms. And when they got into the state championships, it paid for their hotel rooms so they could stay down and play in the championship game, paid for the registration fees for their food. It was a costly, costly thing, cost a lot of money to, 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 for the basketball program to thrive. And, and, and it was all resources that, that went towards that. And they won the championship game. And one of the things that Principal Moore told me in the parking lot last week, is she said, people uh, at the statewide tournament level in Illinois had a real bad taste in their mouth for Chicago public schools. And there was a fight on, on the court uh, before Uplift came down there. And, um, and they warned Uplift, like, hey, you know, y- you need to, you need to like, be respectful. And Principal Moore said, you don't have to worry about our basketball team. They came down there. Not only did they dominate on the court, um, they did so with utter class and respect. And the head of athletics for Chicago Public Schools emailed Principal Moore here and said, you gave Chicago Public Schools such a good name statewide. This past week, the entire Uplift basketball team was honored at City Hall by Mayor Emanuel. Before, before all of the aldermen, he commended them publicly. He got a picture with them. The alderman introduced the principal more to the mayor as his friend. And Uplift was honored. These young men were honored by the mayor of Chicago. And the seeds that you planted quietly, the generosity that you exhibited, allowed for that to happen, allowed for for this school to flourish in a way that it hadn't two years ago. And I'm so proud of you for that. Now just think about scaling that upward. What if more and more of our budget was given to ministries that didn't directly benefit us? Churches that thrive in mission are characterized by generosity that move beyond the church where the ministries are not simply pointed back towards us, but pointed outward for the life of the world. What if you did that with your job? What if you did that with all the capital that you have um, with your coworkers? What if you did that with the capital you've built up and the relationships you have in your neighborhood? What if you did that with the, with, with the things that make you most want to panic in this world, your, your relationships that are broken down or the injustice that you see? This is what the Lord calls us to. Jesus has taken a risk for us. He's come into this space. He's come into the world. He's paid a great cost, and he's shown us that the Father can be trusted, that he can move into danger. He, in fact, can be killed in this life, and the Father will receive his offering, and he will bear fruit from it. We can have courage. We can move out of a place of fear to following Jesus with that same measure of courage and love. Whether it's your broken relationships, injustice, the hostile work environment, God is calling us to cultivate a garden in the wilderness by the power of the Spirit. Because, friends, Christ is risen, and he's making all sad things come untrue. We have all the resources we need, and we're not in a panic. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.